how to criticize Israel without sounding like a moron or an anti-Semite. An essay by Matt Ruby. That's me. Actually, it might be more of a conversation with Matt Ruby. So you can oppose what Israel is doing in Gaza without sounding like a moron, a naive person, or an anti-Semite. But judging by how few are pulling that off, it seems to be a tricky tightrope to walk. So I decided to come up with some steps that you could follow if you want to mindfully criticize Israel without coming off like some kind of dolt. First off, know your history. A lot of the people talking about Israel and Palestine right now seem to act like history started when TikTok was invented. And look, I get it. History is boring. Studying the past sucks. It takes time. You know, you got to surrender the luxury of ignorance, really. You know, you got to swim in the depths of context and nuance and, you know, things get a little murky down there. I've been thinking about it in terms of an analogy. Okay. Imagine I told you I had like really strong opinions about the Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun beef. You know, and I'm coming in hot and I'm outraged and I'm shouting from the rooftops my hot takes all about it. And then someone else is out there and they're like a Swifty who's been following this feud forever. You know, but I don't care. I'm just here to tell you what's what. And that other person might be well, like, wait a minute. Do you know why did Taylor accuse Scooter of bullying in 2016? And what's Big Machine Records? And what happened at the 2019 American Music Awards? And why do some of Swift's songs have Taylor's version in the title now? And imagine if my answers were, I don't know, never heard of it. I'm not sure. And uh, maybe her vocals are louder. You know, you might wonder how I could have such a strong take about a conflict when I clearly don't know the history, context, and nuance of it. You probably see where I'm going by now, right? Because that's how a lot of people who've spent a lifetime immersed in the conflict between Israel and Palestine feel nowadays. They keep seeing people discussing it like there's some simple black and white version of what's happening there, which is comically reductive. I kind of fantasize about a world where people would have to demonstrate at least some knowledge of relevant history before they're allowed to spew their hot take online. Like, you know, those identify the squares with a fire hydrant thing they show you before you're allowed to log into a lot of web apps. I wish we could get something like that before anyone could post about Israel and Palestine. You know, but instead of fire hydrants, it's like a history quiz. It asks, like, what's an intifada? Who were Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin? What happened on Yom Kippur in 1973? What were the Oslo Accords? And if you don't know the answers to that, if you don't pass that quiz, you can't post. It'd be a super way to eliminate the opinions of morons, because right now my timeline is filled with those. If you know nothing about the role of the Ottomans, the British, the UN, other Arab countries, or what happened in like 1948 or 67 or 87 or 2005, just stop spouting opinions and start reading up or listen to a podcast at least. Otherwise, you sound like someone reviewing a book after reading only the last page. Recognize that social media keeps feeding you crap. All right. All these social media companies, they profit from bitter tribalism. So that's why we all keep seeing an avalanche of images and videos that stir fear, outrage and anger, because that's how they monetize you. And of course, that all leads to this endless parade of moral posturing. Amazingly, we've all pivoted from being experts in epidemiology to gurus of international politics. Our hubris knows no bounds. And look, I know that because I am a master philosopher. Social media offers the illusion of moral clarity about news events 6,000 miles away that are substantively confusing even to people six miles away. If you're gobbling up social media to reach strongly held opinions about late-breaking news, you're making a feast out of garbage. I think he's got a point. Avoid utopian thinking. It's easy to condemn without offering any kind of reasonable alternative. That's why there's so much messaging going around that's like, I don't know what Israel should do, but I oppose everything they actually do. And look, of course, it's fair to criticize Israel. And if you do that, it doesn't mean you're anti-Semitic. In fact, I'm a Jew and here, I'll give it a go. Collective punishment, it's grossly unfair. And people shouldn't be held responsible for the actions of their government. 
And even if Israel kills off Hamas, then what happens? Is there a plan or are we just witnessing vengeance? I mean, honestly, it feels like Israel could be making the same mistake America made after 9-11. Killing thousands of innocent civilians? It seems like it might just create a new generation of terrorists. And bleeding kids on the news every night ain't exactly helping in the PR war. Is it that hard to create safe zones for civilians and, you know, just do more to avoid any appearance of war crimes? Because if Israel seeking security, inflaming the rest of the world doesn't seem like the best way to achieve that objective. Now, all that said, I've yet to hear of a path for Israel to eliminate Hamas, something that that country sees as an imperative for its survival that doesn't involve civilian casualties. What's the way Israel gets to live in security and peace? And if you don't have an answer for that, why should they really listen to you? I read this piece by Ned Lazarus, a peace activist who spent his life working with both Israelis and Palestinians to try to create peaceful change. And he wrote, I envy those who know exactly how Hamas can be stopped without any more killing, because I don't. And he makes a good point. Any alternative plan has to convince the actual decision makers in Israel that whatever happens next will result in sustainable security. Because right now, they're scared about their entire existence. Israelis will eventually vote out the current government. I mean, they're furious with them. And that moment will be the greatest opportunity for peace in the region in decades. But that new Israeli government will have no one to negotiate with if Hamas is still in power. If you want lasting peace, it's quite possible that an invasion that results in the elimination of Hamas is actually your best hope. Beware of the mob and mob thinking. Look, all these rallies, I I don't know how to feel. I mean, I'd throw a don't kill innocent civilians, but also Israel has a right to defend itself against a death cult that uses human shields and stores weapons in hospitals. So it's tough to say what the right approach is, rally. But pretty sure our chance would be way too wordy. And you know what? That's the problem with yelling. You've got to keep it simple. And life is rarely simple. And this situation definitely ain't. That's my issue with rallies and mob mentalities in general. It usually just leads to more hate. That's why I have beef with rallies of any kind. I don't care what you're rallying for or how noble the cause. Once you get hundreds of people together all chanting the same slogans, things get dumb. It turns into a parade of pandering intended to incite and just make people angry. Folks start yelling stuff simply because it rhymes, and eventually the megaphone winds up in the hands of some idiot who feels exhilarated by mass murder, or even worse, wants to recite slam poetry. Ugh. Resist an overly simplistic ideology of oppression. I get it. It's comforting to see the world through this whole Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader prism. You know, you get to plug your stereotypes into a formula. You don't have to worry about nuance. But I feel like we're witnessing the limitation of that worldview as we, I don't know, it's just so bizarre. We're, we're seeing feminists supporting rapists and queer people defending those who would murder them on sight. And that's the danger of embracing some narrow ideology and making it your grand unified theory of politics. I know it's fashionable to view the world through an oppressor, oppressed prism, especially one that focuses on race, but the truth is more complicated than that. And it's kind of ethnocentric to apply such an American prism to every problem around the world. Let me read you an excerpt from a piece by Simon Montefiore. It was in The Atlantic, and it's called The Decolonization Narrative is Dangerous and False. The decolonization narrative is that it is almost impossible for the quote-unquote oppressed to be themselves racist, just as it is impossible for an quote-unquote oppressor to be the subject of racism. Jews, therefore, cannot suffer racism because they are regarded as white and privileged. Although they cannot be victims, they can and do exploit other less privileged people in the West through the sins of exploitative capitalism and in the Middle East through colonialism. This leftist analysis with its hierarchy of oppressed identities and intimidating jargon, a clue to its lack of factual rigor, has in many parts of the academy and media replaced traditional universalist leftist values, including internationalist standards of decency and respect for human life and the safety of innocent civilians. When this clumsy analysis collides with the realities of the Middle East, 
It loses all touch with historical facts. The whole piece is pretty good. I encourage you to read it. Basically, there's civilization and then there's barbarism. And if your ideology can't separate them, it might be time to find a new one. Now, normally we wait to the end of an essay to do a Q&A sort of thing, but I want to bring in producer Jeremiah McVeigh. Jeremiah, you had a point to discuss on this one? Uh, yeah, maybe a couple. I, I guess I'm curious, when you say feminists supporting rapists and queer people defending those who would murder them on site, who, who are you talking about exactly? Because it doesn't seem clear to me who that is and, and that that's happening. Um, okay. So enlighten me, I guess. Sure. Uh, you know, I, we, I'm painting with a broad brush, you know, uh, but it's, I would kind of put it under the academia, uh, a lot of the far left woke, uh, progressive, the democratic social socialist alliance, uh, you know, and other pieces I've seen it described as intellectuals in Brooklyn and Berkeley. And, you know, those people who are now, uh, you know, arguing against Israel and, uh, sort of making, uh, Hamas's cause seemingly one of their own and rallying against, uh, you know, what Israel is doing in a way that seems to be endorsing Hamas's behavior, which if you're a feminist seems outrageous. And if you're a queer person or a queer ally, uh, seems ludicrous because they would murder queer people on site. So you have such strange sort of bedfellows arising here in a way that makes you wonder if a lot of these people actually understand what they're talking about and the nuances as opposed to just sort of seeing the world through this prism of like oppressor and oppressed and you know the the lighter skinned people are being you know cruel and oppressing the darker skinned people and sort of this simplistic ideology that i think you know has uh you know run run rampant on a lot of you know especially on college campuses and we're we're seeing elsewhere and um if you're interested in reading more about it in my newsletter there's a piece by Yasha Munk that I uh linked to called the deep roots of the left's deafening silence on Hamas and one by Shlomo Clapper as university crowds cheer Hamas the intellectual left has rarely been less moral so yeah i guess maybe whatever words you want to use the intellectual left or you know uh people who are believing in this oppressor oppressed dichotomy as their ideology of seeing the world yeah I, I, sure I, I guess not that i have the same perspective as you on this but yeah, like I've, I've seen so many people being pretty careful to parse hamas and palestinian and you know trying to make sure that they're careful to say like they don't endorse obviously the violence of hamas but do not condone the violence against innocent Palestinian people. So I, I just haven't witnessed this, like feminists supporting rapists, rapists being Hamas. Like, I, I feel like you're maybe entangling Hamas and Palestinians in there. And so that's what I would push back on. But like, I haven't seen that, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Sure. I mean, that's why I kind of encourage people to go check out these links because they, you know, give more detailed examples of how and when this is happening. Um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I would agree with your assessment of I think Palestinians and Hamas can and should be separated and the death of innocent civilians is tragic. Um, I think there is. And anytime you get into this, you know, sort of uh, mass grouping of people of, oh, you all believe in this ideology and you're all the same is a dangerous thing. Uh, I certainly agree that there are people able to parse in the way that you're talking about. I do think that there are also people who, you know, are viewing Hamas as uh, freedom fighters who are, you know, uh, oppressed people who are fighting for their liberation against the oppressors and justifying their actions, including the actions of October 7th. And, mm -hmm. you know, even, you know, like Black Lives Matter putting a paraglider, you know, in their logo or, you know, I did not see that. Wow. It was like one branch, but, you know, still oh, yeah. people showing yeah. up at rallies and, and showing swastikas and, you know, people chanting gas the Jews. And like, you know, um, obviously then we get into like, hyperbolic almost like how could anyone defend it sort of stuff but there's a lot of people out there comparing jews to nazis you know there's so they, so uh i'm not saying that everyone who's you know criticizing israel is in that camp but i think if you do want to criticize israel whatever you can do to uh demonstrate that you're not in that camp and able to parse that distance and recognize what would happen if hamas uh, did attain power over that region and what the example would set for others in that region and how horrific that would be for 
you know, anyone who, you know, purportedly cares about feminism or cares about being a queer ally and, and the inherent sort of uh, contradiction there, if you can uh, demonstrate that within whatever arguments you want to make criticizing Israel, I think it'll go a long way. I mean, the, the college campus thing, I've seen pushback on some of those early reports. So I don't know if there's still stuff out there that hasn't been debunked. Maybe maybe there is. But like the, there was a whole thing about Cooper Union that turned out to not really be what was first reported, I believe. Um, so I don't know if that's what you're referring to or along the lines. Anytime there's a mob, like part of what I was saying earlier, is like when mobs start getting out of hand, I'm like, yeah, mob's going to mob. But I think when yeah, you see, sure. when you see these open letters and these statements or people putting a paraglider logo, you know, and posting it or things like that, that to me is like, okay, someone actually thought about that. Someone someone hit send on that, and like someone yeah. signed their name to something. And to yeah, someone um, did. But but I, I, I mean, think it's, a, a I don't think it's right people. to like say that everybody who has aligned with that person on a lot of things believes that same thing. Because like, I mean, one thing with the Black Lives matter movement is that it's like a decentralized thing which like causes a lot of headaches of like some people saying things that the other people don't agree with but then they all get painted with the same brush um so sure. yeah and i think i, I think, I it's think a anyone good... who's putting like a paraglider on to align themselves with murderous people from hamas is you know that's reprehensible i think but well, I, I, mean, I don't think it's safe to say that like everybody agrees with that. Who is, I who certainly is don't think everybody agrees with that. I do think there could be some level of discussion about the amount that people in charge of like Black Lives Matter or people affiliated with it identify with Louis Farrakhan and the the teachings that he has you know put forth over the years and how wildly anti-Semitic he he's been. And again, but that doesn't mean everyone you know, who believes that Black Lives Matter is in agreement with that. But I think oh, what I'm not. Yeah. And I went to Black Lives Matter rallies and, you know, I'm I just think that there's I think the more again, like the premise of you know this entire piece is like, OK, you want to criticize Israel. Here's how yeah. you can do it in a way that's like mindfully that's not just going to like have like people on the other side rolling their eyes at you is to do your best to show that you recognize who and what you're arguing for because it does seem like there's a lot of people who just sort of learn their history from TikTok and follow hashtags and are just sort of going with the simplistic worldview of like oh those people are meanies and these are the good guys who are being oppressed and it's like uh, you got to you got to know what you're talking about when you're talking about uh what you know the people who are you know waging war against Israel really believe and who you're supporting and who you're defending yeah, and I'm, this is not me saying that you're not saying this, but like I do want to just like restress that the people at war with Israel seems to have been Hamas, not all Palestinians, and or at least not all Palestinians in Gaza, which is where this is concentrated at the moment. I, I do think it's really easy to to scale from one to the other or connect one to the other uh, with without being nuanced in your language. Which I, I get is kind of like the point, I guess. But I do think that like the people who are comparing Jews just generally to Nazis, obviously <laughs> terrible. Like, I mean, come on. I it's mean, ridiculous. Abs absurd. Absurd. Yeah, absurd. But but that said, I think if somebody is making a more like uh, targeted assessment of right wing authoritarian politicians and leaders in Israel, like. I'm not I, I still don't think you should compare them to Nazis for obvious reasons. But like, I think that that is a worthy criticism to make. Like, I, of, of I just agree. The, yeah, I, agree. I know you there's, agree. That's there's what, a bunch of right wing so, religious freaks in Israel yeah. who teamed up with Netanyahu, who are largely yeah. like, uh, I don't want to say they're to blame for what happened on October 7th, but like, you know, bear some well, amount of Hamas. They bear they? some amount of culpability for what's what's happened and uh and israel uh, most israelis are furious at them right now and even I before know. this happened we're taking yeah. to the streets every week to protest what was happening there and what's going on uh, right but yeah it's, well uh, yeah okay it's, well that, that brings us back to the protesting i can't agree with you on that point that you made earlier like i i think that's unfortunately in america protest seems to or marches seems seems to not be a way to accomplish anything even though we've tried a lot of people have tried i understand like how it can be eye rolly or whatever but i do think that there's 
definitely examples in recent years, especially of marshes being the way that change is at least initiated, if not made fully. Like you look at, uh, you know, South Korea, they march and like their president has to <laughs> resign. Like it seems like marches that have been going on in France have an actual political impact. Um, and I, I don't know how impactful the marches, unfortunately, have been in Israel. Maybe they've been more impactful than I know. I just don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that their marching can be good. I think that sometimes those marches do get hijacked by people with their own specific agendas and it's a shame, but like I think I think sometimes marching and showing the vast number and swath of people who are against something that's happening is is not only a worthy thing to do, but can be necessary just to like make certain people wake up to to what other people are thinking and and how they're reacting to circumstances in the world. I so. agree with you, especially when people feel like their representatives are not representing them and, and yeah. taking take to the streets is the only way they can voice their outrage. Like I get it. I'm, I'm in part being hyperbolic with that other sure, sure, point sure. about rallies, but also we're in, the, I, we're in the pushback section though. So, you know, I like it. I like it. Well, also <laughs> I'm talking a little bit about just my personal take and I have right. been to rallies and stuff, but in general, like whenever 10,000 people or hundreds or thousands of people are all screaming the same thing at the same time, I feel uncomfortable. Whether it's a political rally where we're all cheering for the same candidate, whether it's some activist cause where we're mad about, you know, whatever's going on. It's a sporting event where it anytime there's a mob, maybe this comes from being Jewish. Anytime yeah, I see sure. uh, thousands of people all gathered in a place, all screaming exactly the same thing at the same time. I'm like, I don't think this is going to go great for me if this keeps up. I've I've seen this right. I've seen this video before and it, it's not really uh, uh, a good ending for Jewish people. But in general, right. just just groupthink kind of irks me. And in the idea that six thousand people all completely agree with each other exactly on anything always just feels odd to me. And then just having been to rallies myself, whenever like someone gets the megaphone, I'm always like, oh god, why why is this guy talking? That could be just me as a comedian being like, I work really hard to be on stage and and have something to say, and then and then all of a sudden yeah. you see someone just whoever has amplification gets to be heard the most, right. and I'm just like, oh god, I I want this guy to shut right. up. I, I have one more thing I want to say before before you go on. Yep. Um, I, I have not read the Atlantic piece that you uh, just quoted from a, a, a little bit ago. Um, I've seen people talking about it on social media, and it seems like a lot of people like it. A lot of people have a lot of problems with it. Just from this snippet that you read into the podcast, I got to say that anytime someone says leftist, I like immediately start to roll my eyes because I'm like, who the, okay, this is what this is now. Like, it seems like leftist has become like a word that people use to shout down other people that they don't agree with much in the same way that other words get thrown around. Um, so I don't know. I, I, yeah, well, I, I guess skeptical. what's <laughs> what's the right word for like all those people who are at like the Democrat Socialist Alliance rally in New York? You know, yeah, uh, like I, don't know. I like I, I don't I certainly don't think it's anyone who like votes Democrat or anyone who's you know a liberal. I think there's just some swath of people that are you know in this sort of ideology of oppression. I, I guess it's the term that I use sometimes, where everything just goes through the same prism. Of like, right. I have this grand unified theory of the world and there's the oppressors and the oppressed and I will, you know, fight for the oppressed. And like, it's just sort of like, and uh, I'll say it's apartheid and genocide and c colonization and, uh, you know, uh, and just from the vocabulary, you can tell exactly where they're coming from and, you know, all their view on every other views on every other issue under the sun. And it's just sort of like, again, it goes back to this sort of groupthink mentality. And I think. A lot of people are just, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, identifying that and finding it dangerous on some level in a way that like has been crystallized by the reaction to October 7th that like now I think people are speaking up about because some of the dangers of like embracing that ideology are being seen. Yeah, I guess I would just go back to like, I think that there are some people who are either maybe cheering for Hamas don't understand exactly what Hamas is and are being stupid yep. or 
are being silent about Hamas, but you know, whatever. Like I, I think anybody who, who condones or endorses what Hamas did, obviously, like, I don't really care about their opinion from there on, but that, that doesn't to me, and I'm not saying you're saying this, that doesn't to me, um, negate the points that the group that they might be a part of are making because they're one person and maybe it's more than one person, but it doesn't mean that everybody in that group thinks that, you know? So. Sure. I think, uh, anytime you start, you know, talking in sweeping generalizations about a group, yeah. you, you can wind up in trouble. I, I guess all the people signing open letters and like, you know, just, you know, defending, the actions of October 7th in any way, I feel like. I, are there a lot of people signing open letters that are defending the actions of October 7th instead of saying that, like, we don't think that all Palestinians should suffer because of the actions of October 7th? I mean, actually, I think that's a good segue to the next point. Don't forget how the world reacted before Israel retaliated. Some people are saying, oh, this is all about Israel's attack on Gaza and all the children being murdered right now, which, you know, I get it. That is terrible. I understand why people are outraged about that. But also, I want us to remember that there was a period between Hamas attacking and Israel retaliating, and it was freaky. It was people holding up swastikas at rallies. An entire group of people in Australia chanting gas the Jews, all those, you know, aggro open letters sort of justifying what happened and acting like Israel got what was coming to it. And at that point, it wasn't about Israeli bombs dropping or kids trapped under rubble. It just felt like a mass drop of how many people kind of are like, well, you Jews, you kind of deserve this. And I just want you to know that every Jew is going to remember that 48 hour period or so. And. Everything that Jews have been feeling ever since has been colored by that moment. And now we're seeing this whole wave of anti-Semitism spreading throughout the rest of the world, too. And it just feels like people were kind of itching to bust out some good old-fashioned Jew hate. And the more that happens, the more Jews are going to fiercely defend Israel and its right to exist at whatever cost, because that's the whole reason for Israel to exist, is like, look at what's happening everywhere else. Jews feel like they need somewhere to go. I read some quote, and I can't remember by who, but about how anti-Semitism is just at a low simmer all the time, and then just sometimes it boils over. And I think that's something that a lot of Jews are recognizing now in a way that they didn't ever before. Producer Jeremiah McVeigh, what do you think about that one? Just to pull back the curtain for listeners a little bit, like I did not know about some of the things that you refer to in this part about gas the Jews chants, and you sent me the video of that happening from people who were holding Palestinian flags and supporting Palestine um, in Australia. And yeah, that's terrible. There's no defending that. Would never think to try, you know, why Why would you? But um, yeah, I, I guess the open letters thing is the, the area where I think just seeing open letters does paint a broad brush because like I'm sure there are some open letters that are more incendiary and ridiculous than others. Uh, by ridiculous, I mean, like, come on, how can you defend that? Indefensible is maybe the word I should use. But there are some that I, I, I think are more along the lines of maybe don't kill civilians. Maybe don't kill people who had nothing to do with the attack directly. And I agree with know. just to interrupt on that. I think there were a bunch of, again, this this period before Israel started dropping bombs and killing people. True, yeah, that's what you're talking and about. And there were aggressive, like, sort of, uh, again, this is something I, uh, in the newsletter I have links to, but like sort of yeah. these aggressive statements seemingly justifying what Hamas did on October 7th. And to me, that's, that's sort of like this mass drop moment. I, I think there's definitely... Uh, yeah, cogent arguments to be made against what Israel is doing now and, and the amount of the the horrors that people in Gaza are facing. But I think yeah. we have sort of this control group period of time before that happened and the way the yeah. world reacted. I just think it's worth pointing out what Jews saw and what that did to sort of 
Jewish thinking, not that I can lump all Jews together into one category, but um, in right. the conversations that I've had with people, I think it was a, a really startling, eye-opening moment, especially for people in the West who you know might not have thought stuff like this still went on. And like we're like, oh, like even seeing that airport in Dagestan where like there's a mob running through an mm-hmm. airport trying to find a plane from Israel so they can presumably you know just murder the people on it and you're like are these guys super pro-palestinian is that what this is about because it doesn't i don't i don't get a feeling these guys know a lot about like international geopolitics i think these guys just want to murder some jews and uh you know when you're when you're a person who's never seen that before but you've heard stories about it and it's it's almost like oh i've read about this in history books how strange right. that this is happening in real life. And I, I think it's just sort of a, a real mindfuck for uh, a lot of Jewish people. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I appreciate you sharing some of this. Like, I got to think there's other people like me who weren't as aware of some of this stuff that was happening. Because I knew people who were, in a reactionary way, just immediately pro-Israel when they heard that there was an attack. The October 7th attack, and I hear the details of that, they were immediately like, that's terrible. You know, let's support Israel. And then two days later, they're like, oh, wait, I'm I'm conflicted now. <laughs> you know, I, I, get, <laughs> so it. It was I like, get it. So that was more what I was seeing in, in a way. And I mean, there were, I'm not saying that there weren't people who were like, well, what do you expect? Chickens come home to roost, like in the same way after 9-11, where people were like, well, we went and meddled in the Middle East. Did you think that that was never going to have an effect? There were people in that 48 hours and since then, obviously, and even before that, you know, it's 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 another thing that is just like a constant conversation, I guess, of when you put a lot of people at, in an open air prison, as you referred to it, I think, in our last episode about this, at some point, there's a steam that's going to need to escape, I think is also what you said. Mm-hmm. But yeah, obviously, yeah, if, if people are out there saying just indiscriminately, gas the Jews or holding up swastikas to indicate that they want to kill Jews. Obviously that's not defensible in any way, shape or form. Like, but again, I think if you are saying, if it's a more nuanced thing of like, I don't agree with the politicians leading Israel, like this for so many people, just like the anti-Semitism and anti-Zionist thing gets cross wired and, people don't know how to talk about it or something. Yeah. And I think part of my intention with this piece is to argue for some sort of way to have dialogue around this that's not just blindly tribalist on either side and to accept the nuance of it. Like people are saying gas the Jews or showing swastikas or comparing Jews to Nazis. I don't even think you can have a conversation with them. So whatever. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are people who, you know, are uh, maybe not seeing as much nuance or are not able to identify completely with where some Jews, some Israelis, some people who are supporting Israel are coming from. And so part of what I'm trying to do is at least offer that context. So, okay, process all that and now go for it. Now go criticize, you know, Netanyahu and and the right-wing settlers and this militaristic approach, you know, and, you know, I I think there's plenty of good questions um, and critiques Mm -hmm. to make about it, but like, just know what you're talking about, understand where you're coming from and also understand, like, I think we can all see, you know, these children at these hospitals in Gaza and what's happening there and, and, you know, feel heartbroken about it. But I also think understanding the terror that Israelis and a lot of Jews are feeling right now is a big part of this and like, uh, just trying to be mindful of all of it, which is obviously challenging, Mm -hmm. but I think, I think it's the path forward, especially because, if we want peace, eventually there's going to need to be reasonable, empathetic people on both sides who are willing to find some sort of compromise. And without that, it's just going to be just endless cycles of violence. I think maybe this all takes us into your next point anyway. So okay. do you want to go move on to that? Let's do it. Acknowledge anti-Semitism exists and what the Jews have been through. So look, we all know the Jewish people's long history of starting wars and indiscriminately killing folks. I mean, it's just like we've always done for centuries. It's what our religion is kind of all about. I mean, 
We're a combative people with an insatiable thirst for blood. Yeah, that is definitely the issue. Okay, look, sarcasm just feels like the most Jewish way to handle this. <laughs> but what I'm really saying is that Jews, are, they're really frightened right now. And that's saying something because we're always frightened. <laughs> All of our holidays fixate on suffering and the bad stuff that's happened and kind of teaching you a lesson of like, no matter where you go, eventually they're going to come for you. And all you'll have is Hashem and each other and get used to it. And unfortunately, it's been proven true over and over again, even in modern day times. You know, if you want to know why Jews are freaking out right now, it's not just because of those guys at the airport in Dagestan or people painting blue stars on homes in Paris. There was the medieval mass killings of Jews in many Christian and Muslim societies and massacres in Ukraine in the 1600s and Russian pogroms in the 1800s and the Holocaust, of course. And I mean, the list goes on. I'm just saying Jews have cause to feel anxious. And also, it's spooky how little focus there's been on the massacre that started all of this. I mean, it just seems like when something bad happens to Jews just seems like there's less sympathy about it like we're the cauliflower in a veggie platter everything else gets noticed first until there's no choice left but to acknowledge us and american jews they have a luxury all right they can delude themselves in a way that israelis who are surrounded by people who hate them and want them eliminated don't have a sword is hanging above their heads constantly and now people are arguing for a ceasefire but what is israel supposed to do just pull back and try to coexist with Hamas, a death cult that doesn't seem to care about the lives of Jews, Palestinians, or even their own lives? I mean, this is the crazy thing to me. I know an Israeli friend who decided to go to Berlin because it was going to be safer. When Jews are going to Germany to feel safe, you know things are messed up. Let's bring in producer Jeremiah McVeigh one more time. Hey. Obviously, this all brings true because it's true. I mean, the Jewish people have been historically. Face the brutal reality of war. I'm kind of surprised by how people don't really seem to understand how war works. Like I'm not a general, but like, here's what I know about war. When one army invades another and refuses to surrender, the war continues. And it's sad, but innocent civilians perish when that fighting continues, just like happened when we bombed Dresden or Hiroshima. And just because civilians are dying, that doesn't automatically mean war crimes have been committed. So that goes on until eventually one side or the other surrenders, and after that comes peace. And that's how reconciliation can happen. But this is what almost never happens, is that a stronger army gets invaded and then agrees to a ceasefire without retaliating. Like, can you imagine if Pearl Harbor was attacked and America was just like, oh, shucks, guess they got us. Anyway, moving on. I mean, come on, what are we talking about here? And if you don't understand that's how war works, I, I guess I kind of feel congratulations on when and where you were born, because you're incredibly privileged to have lived a life where the brutal reality of warfare is that foreign to you and you know war is hell don't start one if you can't finish it war sucks and if one side invades and then wants the conflict to end they should surrender otherwise expect it to continue and you know i get it ceasefire now is a nice notion but i just don't know if that's how reality or war works and one thing i think about these ceasefire now people is like they got to send that message to hamas there's Hamas spokesman, you know, saying we're going to attack again, two, three, four times, as many times as it takes. They're still firing rockets. So like a ceasefire has to involve both sides. But here's producer Jeremiah McVeigh. I, I got to point out that I, I feel like you're talking about war as as it exists between states. And that's not what we're dealing with here, though, to my understanding. Like it, the Palestinian people don't have a state. They don't have a strong representative government that can be dealt with hamas is like a semi-independent actor from the whole of the palestinian people or the gazan people in this case i don't think that this holds up to, to full scrutiny uh, hamas has, de has declared war on israel and yes. attacked them israel has now declared war on hamas 
Yes. So but as we like, said, how, how Hamas does and the Palestinian people work? are not one and the same? Yeah, so. but like Hamas has embedded themselves within the Palestinian infrastructure and within the Palestinian people and uses them as human shields and stores weapons and yeah. has head- headquarters and hospitals and schools. So like at some point, like Israel is like, we are going to defeat Hamas. And there is no way to do that without also attacking Gaza. So I like uh, it's uh, mm. I understand what you say that they might like the Nazis might not have been the most representative government of every single individual person in Germany during World War Two. But I don't know if that's the way you parse, you know, what you do from a military perspective when you get sure, it. But attacked. again, they had a state. There is no state here. I guess that to me, like w- that, kind of feels like semantics. So Israel should just surrender. I don't think it is semantics. Well, like I what? Think that what should Israel who do? Don't have full what? control over their own it's, own destiny. It's right? and, horribly and it's, unfair and tragic what's happening. But like, what is yeah. it, what is Israel supposed to do? Don't bomb hospitals and refugee camps is an easy thing to not do. What if that's where um, the like, head, I, what I if that's where they, Hamas puts their headquarters? Why shouldn't you? Then tell they it, win that round. I'm sorry. You like, tell you gotta, Hamas you gotta, to not put you gotta, their headquarters. You got to send in like your version of SEAL Team Six to deal with. They're it. Like, about you can't, to like okay, but they've already bombed the hell out of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not convinced that what Israel is doing is the most effective strategy or result in the outcome that they desire. But I also am only, I'm not hearing very many reasonable alternatives for what they should be doing. And I agree. It's it, the whole thing. The whole I thing's mean, horrible been, and tragic. And like it's like what's happening to the Palestinian people in Gaza is awful. Um, yeah. I, but like from an Israeli perspective, Hamas cannot be allowed to exist any longer is, is the view of Israel. And, and so now now they will do whatever it takes to eliminate Hamas from existence now whether or not that's justified whether or not what's about to happen and what is happening uh will lead to increased safety or security i think is like very debatable i don't know if there is a military solution to what i think is essentially a political problem but i also think like the truly evil actors here are hamas and what is happening now israel is faced with a bunch of horrible choices and i don't agree with many that they're making but i also am encouraging some framework of acknowledgement of like wow what a what a fucked up terrible situation and series of choices to have to navigate i think that if you are bombing hospitals and refugee camps you have lost in a way i i think that like i'm sorry like you you need to find a better way to deal with it it's not on the people in the camps in the hospital and and let's let's also talk about the hypocrisy of they have told people to retreat to some of these places, then they attack them because Hamas knows that they can turn this into a bigger thing. Like they're they're falling into the Hamas's trap. Like to me, this seems so like short sighted. And I and I know you're kind of like paying lip service to this um, at the same time, but like. I I, th- I think it's so short-sighted and ridiculous that this is the approach they're taking. Like, and I know people. I know it's not always great to. I haven't always agreed with people who who keep bringing up nine eleven and America. Like, I don't think it's a one to one, but I think this is one place where it makes sense. Like, I think Al Qaeda got exactly what they wanted. They wanted in that moment to uh, basically tricked the United States into dumping resources into stupid ass wars that we were never going to be able to like really complete in the way that we would consider a win. And they got that, you know, we took, we took out most of them in the, at the same time, but they didn't give a shit. Like like they were a suicide cult essentially. And the same thing here, like they, they, they knew that they could tempt Israel to make boneheaded moves and it paid off. Like, I'm sorry, but like, I think that that is like, I I just don't understand how there isn't another way. There has to be like, you have resources, you supposedly have some of the best trained military personnel in the world. Be surgical. Like, don't don't drop fucking anvils when you could use like a laser, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, Hiroshima, you know, sort of analogy 
like I think there was some brutal mathematics to war sometimes where America was like, well, if we're going to kill this many people because we think it'll save this many lives of our own soldiers. And I don't buy that. I've never bought that argument. It's horseshit, I think, but whatever. Well, yeah, well, especially when you get into dropping the second bomb. But, I, you know, not to yeah. make this about Hollywood, but Oppenheimer, the movie, gets at some of this stuff. And, yeah, I, I think we might get a little off track if we're debating about yeah. whether America should have dropped the bomb in World War II. But um, I, I acknowledge... Well, I think, I, it's, I think it's worth bringing up as precedent for this kind of thing being uh, not the right way to go. Like, it gets you into all sorts of places that you don't want to be. Yeah. And, and morality within warfare and how much do you want to maintain the moral high ground if you can. And, but I I certainly understand where you're coming from. And yeah, I mean, my overwhelming feeling about all of this is how sad it is and how much it doesn't feel like we're headed towards some solution. And yet it feels like nonetheless, the train is just going to keep going down the track. No Israelis hate Netanyahu, too. Think Netanyahu and those right-wing zealots he partnered up with are a bunch of goons? Well, I got good news for you. Israelis largely agree with you. Before all this, they were going to the streets every week and protesting what the government was trying to do with the courts there. And now they're even more furious with Bibi because he failed to keep Israel safe. I mean, that was his you-had-one-job kind of thing to do. So... If you're looking for some kind of silver lining, I'm pretty sure he ain't going to survive all this when all is said and done. And actually, while we're talking about him, you know who Netanyahu reminds me of? Rudy Giuliani. They were both kind of flashy and charismatic guys when they were young, smart, and like loved being in front of a camera. And then they got famous in the 80s and then came to power in the 90s and then slowly became addicted to that power and the status it gave them and refused to yield the stage and leave and because of that, wound up teaming up with like far-right religious freaks just in order to cling to power in any way possible. And now they're watching their careers sink in a toxic combo of infamy, incompetence, and indictments. Feels like power just soured both of them until they went off the rails. Oh, and uh, horrible terror attacks from radical Muslims happened under both their watches too. So the parallels are kind of spooky. And honestly, so are they. Jeremiah, do you have thoughts on that? I just want to co-assign. <laughs> well done. Plus one. <music> Lastly, and maybe most importantly, except that two competing narratives can both be true. Feels like there's a battle going on. Which side's suffering should command the most of the public's attention and sympathy? And I just think we all need to hold room for the possibility that there are multiple realities here. You know, that both sides have a true and heartbreaking story to tell. That's what wisdom requires. You got to accept complexity and nuance instead of binary thinking. There's an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote on this that's great. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. There's a whole, I am the real victim here mentality going on these days. It's like the biggest drug of the modern age. It feels like we're all addicted. But really what needs to happen here is both sides need to acknowledge their shared complicity. We need to realize that no one comes away clean. If you think your story is the only one to tell here, well, that's how this cycle of violence is just going to keep going on forever. So there you go. That's my advice on how to criticize Israel if you want to. And really, I'd love to see more constructive commentary from fair-minded pro-Palestinian folks who know their history and understand all the things that Israel is facing during all this. I'd love to hear more of that instead of angry chanting and people ripping down flyers. And I've found it in some places, but I'd just like to see it more because we're going to need empathetic types on both sides if there's ever going to be a path forward. Producer Jeremiah McVeigh, any more thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think we we said a lot within, <laughs> within this episode. 
I, I just want to restress for myself that like I come from what I think is like a simple place of like I am not on, in favor of murder and I'm not in favor of violence. And I think sometimes violence can be justified, but I think that when it is against innocence, it hardly ever can be. That's my take. Um, I think that I understand that war is a reality. I think that this particular war, if you even want to call it that, I, I kind of think it stretches the definition, to be honest. I just think that like the people who are trying to just live should not be the ones who are getting bombed um, in retaliation for things that they did not do themselves. And uh, I don't know. To me, it seems that seems simple. Um, and I don't think that that is an anti-Semitic thing. I don't think you think that. I think that anybody who does think that doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, honestly. And uh, tell me where I'm where I'm missing something, because I know that like my viewpoint on this is much different than yours. Obviously, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Israeli or anything. I think from like an ethical perspective, like what you're advocating for is, you know, noble and something to aspire to. Um, I think I'm worried that what Israel is doing right now is not going to be effective, is unnecessarily brutal. The cutting off of, you know, fuel and water and electricity to civilian populations, um, not letting, you know, aid trucks in, uh, any, if there is bombing going on, that's indiscriminate. I think any of those things are very difficult to defend from a moral perspective. Um, the context that I would give is that the or originators of that evil are Hamas, that Israel, if they wanted to, could you know eliminate every single Palestinian in the Gaza Strip tomorrow if that's what they wanted to they don't have to you know warn people before they drop bombs they don't have there's there there is more ferocious things that they could do so we have a spectrum of behavior here i wish that there was more targeted strikes going on that there was uh you know uh more of an awareness of how their actions are perceived on a global stage, if for no other reason, from a PR perspective of trying to maintain allies, of trying to maintain support around the world, of trying to maintain support from America and from American politicians. Um, but also, I don't live in Israel. And right. I think that's that's sometimes the framing that I think is easy and uh, one of those quote-unquote luxury beliefs that we can have here of being like, it's not my existence that's being threatened and what that does to people and uh, what sort of reactions you get from people who feel cornered and threatened and attacked and brutalized uh, is can be ferocious. And unfortunately, I think you could get both sides could make the argument that they're the ones on the receiving end of that. And so for me, what I seek is a path out of this cycle of violence. And I think it's possible that the only way out of that is the elimination of Hamas and the removal of Netanyahu and this right-wing government from power um, will provide us with some small window of a potential path towards peace. But to get there may involve brutality that is horrific. And, you know, I'm, I'm saddened and, uh, you know, the whole thing is tragic. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, the point that, um, this is a bad move in terms of PR, but also like in terms of their own security, like it, I don't see how this makes them safer in the long run. I, I mean, I understand the argument, but I don't buy it, I guess. Like, I think that they are seemingly trying to create more enemies for themselves in, in their asymmetrical reaction, if you want to call it that, to to what happened on October 7th. I mean, there are Israelis who are against what is happening now. And I think that that says a lot. I guess I would ask you, do you think that eliminating Hamas is actually possible, one, and two, even if you did, quote unquote, eliminate Hamas, if the conditions between Israel and Palestine do not improve, 
won't there just be other terrorist organizations that are going to do the same thing? I think that's a great question. Yeah. Like when the issue is political, there may not be a military solution. I feel that what's happening right now just creates another generation of terrorists, you know, throughout the Arab world that despises Israel and is committed to uh, committing horrific acts against it. And yeah, I don't know the calculus that's going on that makes this approach seem right. But I also think sometimes when people feel cornered and helpless, they have a bias towards action as opposed to just do nothing and hope for the best. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're also seeing how much Israel is sort of convinced that the rest of the world hates them and won't be there for them no matter what and uh, kind of doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks. You know, when the UN tells them they're committing atrocities and they're like, oh, the same UN that made Syria the head of the Human Rights Commission, that's who we should listen to. I think there's a lot of attitude amongst Israelis of like, you're never going to back us anyway. No matter what we do, you're going to hate us. No matter what we do, we're going to be the ones picked on by the rest of the world. So we're just going to go it on our own. But in the end, what kind of strategy is that? Where does that get you? You know, what happens if Iran or Hezbollah or other people attack? What what happens if, you know, things get dicier here in America for supporting it and, you know, Biden starts pulling back? I mean, I, I don't know that there's good strategic long-term thinking going on here. And that's my big fear, that there's decisions being made out of uh, desire for vengeance as opposed to a thoughtful, long-term political solution that allows for Israel to live in security and peace. But also, I have the luxury of not living there and you know, kind of having all the thoughts I do on it. But I appreciate you engaging in a mindful conversation about all this and, you know, kind of having the dialogue. And to me, just in general, conversations like this are the path forward, even if they are sort of thorny or or challenging at times, as opposed to like so many people are just stuck in their like tribal silos right now or in the the group chat that they're in that's just sharing like horrific memes supporting their point of view. And to me, all that does is sort of contribute to that cycle continuing. So if nothing else, uh, thanks for having this conversation with me. And, and I'm hopeful that other people can you know, kind of have similar dialogue out there. And, and, you know, if nothing else, try to try to understand, like, man, this is thorny, complicated. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, but I appreciate the invitation to, to talk about it. It's obviously not an easy subject to discuss and it's one that i haven't really discussed publicly just because like i haven't felt like i have wanted to or should um because like i don't feel like i know every facet of it well enough to have an opinion that's going to or or i don't i I haven't felt like i've had much to add to um what i've already seen i think that's the right approach to be like well here's how i'm seeing it tell me why you think i'm wrong if you do as opposed to this sort of like, I'm right, and I'm going to tell you why you're wrong, and end of conversation, which seems to be like right. a lot of the mode of dialogue, on, especially on social media. So people sit, yeah. sitting down in a room or getting on Zoom or whatever it is, and actually like having a conversation and a real dialogue, I think, is a path forward instead of us all barking at each other. You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rubes Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff, too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. 
podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 